The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. You guys braved the roads and the weather. Good job. First snow of the year. It's not going to stop you, is it? Here we are. We're ready to worship. So there's a part in the sermon where we're going to talk about the intense heat in the Iraqi desert. So that'll warm you up right about halfway through the sermon. So we probably have more live streamers than normal this morning. So we're glad you guys are watching. One of my daughters is doing that as well this morning. So um, we're going to wrap up the book of Jonah today. I'm really excited to do this. So if you have a Bible, you can start looking for it because you'll find it five minutes later. It's one of the small prophets in the back of the Old Testament. Okay, so start looking now if you want to follow along. We're going to look at chapter four. And Jonah's a really short uh, book. It only has 48 verses in it. But the story of Jonah is, is famous. Like the Christian tradition, obviously we have it in our Bible. The Jewish tradition recognizes Jonah. So do the, those in the Muslim faith. They, I talked to a guy from Iran a couple weeks ago, and he goes, oh, yeah, we know Jonah. We know that story, too. So it's a really famous story, but it's, a, it's an interesting one that we're going to see this morning. Uh, in fact, somebody last week asked me, is the Jonah series over? Because when you get to the end of chapter 3, it seems like game over. It's, let's just go home. But chapter 4 is going to really show us um, something pretty powerful. So if you uh, have not been with us, let me just give a quick Jonah recap. And Jonah is a prophet of God. We're, we're told that. We don't know much more about him than that. And at the very beginning of the book, God commands Jonah to go give a message for God to the great city of Nineveh. And it's the first time God ever asked a prophet to leave the safe confines of his country to go prophesy against a, a foreign, even an enemy uh, entity. So it would be like you guys getting out today and we have a plane for you to, for you to go deliver a message uh, to ISIS. And in fact, it's the same region and it's kind of the same type of people, very brutal, ruthless. Um, they have attacked God's people at least three different times. And so just a notorious people. And so it was a huge assignment. Jonah go preach a message for God to Nineveh. So instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah went west. And three different times, it says, Jonah tried to get away from the presence of God. He was just a prophet, should know better than that. You can't get away from God, but he tried. And so he went the exact opposite direction. And so God intervened, and you see God intervening in so many ways in the book of Jonah, and God directing things, like God directed a storm to, to hit Jonah's ship. So that the only way for that ship to survive would be to have the sailors throw Jonah overboard. And they did. As soon as Jonah hit the water, the storm calmed, okay? And so the next thing you see is God directed. So God directs everything, and everything obeys God except Jonah, okay? So God commands a fish to swallow Jonah. And so then in chapter 2, we see Jonah giving a praise to God for saving him, from rescuing him, from sinking to the depths of the water. And so he's amazed, and he's singing God's praises for his mercy and his grace, so then God commands the fish to throw Jonah up, and there he is on the shore. Now we start chapter 3. It's like Jonah's do-over. So same verse, same commandment. Okay, Jonah, go preach to Nineveh. And so this time, probably covered in seaweed, a little bit bleached, smelling like a dead fish, he goes to Nineveh. Okay, so we saw that chapter last week. Nineveh is a huge city, 120,000 people, um, maybe as wide as 60 miles from suburb to suburb, just a vast city. And so Jonah walks into this city and just, just gives an eight-word sermon. Just eight words. All he said was, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Done. It's like a walk-off. He just, just dropped the sermon and then just walked off. And that's, that's all he did. 
And then God did an astonishing thing. The whole city of Nineveh repented. In fact, even when the king heard the message, he took off his robe. He put on sackcloth. Think about burlap. It was something you put on um, as an expression of repentance and wanting to change your ways. And so um, he just he demanded that all people stop eating, stop drinking, and put on sackcloth. And he even said, the king said, even the animals should put on sackcloth. So everybody's frantically cutting out little sackcloth costumes for Fluffy and for the sheep and for the cows. And so the whole place is going repentant mode. And so God sees that. And you look at verse 10, chapter 3, it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Like, what would you expect then? Like, this is, imagine a Billy Graham crusade. Like, he gives an eight-word sermon, and 120,000 people come forward. Like, wouldn't you expect, like, excitement and hugs and crying, and they're hoisting Billy Graham off, you know, and they're hoisting Jonah off, and it's like, yeah, it's like the Super Bowl, and there's streamers everywhere, like, when you expect, you know, the Bible says, Jesus said, when one sinner repents, there's a party in heaven. We just saw 120,000 repent. Like, one, the world's going on in heaven, right? And so you're just picturing this is going to be awesome. This is going to be an amazing setting. And yet it isn't. Like, something just totally different happens. And um, we're going to see Jonah still wasn't right in his heart. That's what chapter 4 is all about. And what you're going to see, it's so cool, is that, and what we have to be honest about this morning is that, is that God exposes Jonah's heart. God was excited that 120,000 people repented, but God was still concerned that there was one who hadn't yet. And that one was, you would never expect, but that one was the prophet. And so this morning, I want us to be ready to look and to put ourselves in Jonah's sandals today and say, could I be Jonah? Could the same things that God needed to expose in Jonah's heart be just sitting there in our hearts as well, because God is passionate to see, he would love to see 120,000 people today begin to follow Jesus, but he would be equally concerned that every heart in here beats for and pounds for the same thing that his heart pounds for too. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in, and it's a great chapter, so we can't wait to get into it. So let's, uh, let's get ready, and let's pray. And I'm going to ask you first to pray. I know you probably have snow on the mind, and Maybe you slid a little bit here or there, and you're worried about getting home. So let's, let's just kind of put that aside right now. And could you ask uh, for God to speak to you clearly this morning and for God to expose your heart this morning? Could you ask him to do that? And then could you um, pray for me to pray that I would just be clear that this morning it would be God's words that we hear, not mine, and uh, that I would speak very clearly from this text. God, we love you, and we thank you for this amazing story, and I thank you that you love every one of us in this room, and you can show us what's really going on in our hearts. So would you do that through your word today? Do surgery on our hearts and make sure that our hearts are pounding for the same things that your heart pounds for. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's uh, start reading. If you have, an, you have an outline in your bulletin, if you want to follow along there, you can do that as well. Um, and the verses will be on the screen. So Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. 
Uh, so remember, just we just saw an amazing repentance, amazing revival. So here's how Jonah responded. Verse 1, chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Again, shock. Like, how could you not be excited, Jonah, about what you just saw? How could you not be fist-bumping, hugging, crying, like just going crazy? That's a career right there. Like an evangelist, one sermon, eight words, 120,000. Like, Jonah, what's wrong? What's, What's going on here? And so there's clearly something wrong in Jonah's heart. And in fact, it isn't his theology. He totally nails it about who God is. When he said, God, I know that you're a God who's gracious and merciful, he was quoting the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. It comes from Exodus 34, where God revealed himself to Moses. God showed his glory to Moses. And so that verse was actually a proclamation from God about himself. This is who God is. He is a gracious and he is a merciful God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love. Like A plus, Jonah, on your theology. But Jonah, you're getting an F for your heart right now. You know about God, but your heart isn't pounding for the things that God's heart pounds for. So, um, so, so there we are. And so he's complaining, actually, about the same grace that he's been receiving throughout the book. You know, Jonah's already a short book, already only 48 verses. Jonah could have been a three-verse book. Like, God commands Jonah, Jonah disobeys, God squashes Jonah, God puts Micah in the game. Like, that could have been it. Like, wipe Jonah off your shoe, and let's move forward. Like, that could have been a three-verse book, in and out. But God has been gracious with Jonah throughout this book, throughout his life, and yet that wasn't, that wasn't quite sinking in. There were two reasons, I think, that Jonah wasn't celebrating about what was going on. I think, first, Jonah was a hater, okay? Jonah hated Nineveh. And some of this, I don't want to blow over. This would be similar today to if you were from um, a Kurdish background and you have had a decade of ISIS ravaging your village and your family and your business. And maybe they've even in your face murdered people that you love. Like the Ninevites have been cruel and harsh and ruthless people. So we got to give Jonah a little, a little pass here. Okay, so, but he hates he hates Nineveh. And so what God's trying to do is to root out that hatred out of Jonah's heart. I did a little study this week, just bumped around different internet sites about what are the things about people that annoy us. It was a little bit scary. I found some of my tendencies on those lists, but here's a few, like driving slow in the fast lane, uh, being a spoiled brat, uh, being a hypocrite, being a whiner. People never admit that they're wrong. Uh, people constantly interrupt people in conversations. Uh, people use their phone during movies. I'm, I'm right there on that one. And uh, people have a Facebook page for their pet. We, Bubba has an Instagram page, so but that's maybe we got to take that down. I didn't, I didn't find that annoying. But um, so those are different things that are there. So we all have those people that just kind of annoy us and just rub us wrong or 
For me, it's people going too slow through the fast checkout lane. I think we should qualify for the fast checkout lane. Like, if you can't get your card in and out of a thing and get out of my way quicker than that, why don't you just go to the B-team lines and let me just stay here. Like, let's train you, get you out of my way quicker. Like, those, I do, I have my issues, too. It's big time there. So, but we're not just talking about things that annoyed Jonah. I mean, this went deeper. These were issues of hatred um, for Jonah. And we definitely are living in a time in our country where we see hate, we see sides lining up. I think our country is as polarized as I can remember it being. Um, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, progressive, um, lifestyle choices, even racial divides that we see in our country. And it's very possible um, that there's not just annoyances in our hearts, but that there's actual hatred in our hearts. Um, sometimes it comes out subtly, like you might not be protesting people and writing signs and writing nasty Facebook posts, but there's probably a part of your heart that when somebody on the other team fails, that you get excited. Or there's probably a part of your heart that when somebody on the other team, then you does well, you're like, man, that's not right. You know, there's that part of you that shows you're not just annoyed with some people, but you might actually have a hatred for some people. In fact, this quote came out about five years ago, but if, have you heard of the illusionist Penn and Teller? You know, they're really funny and they do all this stuff. But um, the Penn of that Penn, and, uh, Penn Gillette is his name. He's a very outspoken atheist. And he has this very famous quote that he has said about Christians who do not share their faith. Like usually what you hear from an atheist is, don't shove your faith on me. Like just, just stay away, keep your faith to yourself. Listen to what Penn Gillette says. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it might be socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? Isn't that, a, isn't that an amazing statement? But sometimes our hatred can be even viewed in just passivity or just indifference. Like, I just don't even think about them. Like, they're not even on my radar to not even pray for or to reach out to or, or to talk to. So uh, Jonah should have been celebrating, but Jonah had, uh, I think, a hatred. He was a hater. The other problem with Jonah is, and uh, this one, if you're not a hater, you, you could be this one, all right? So I don't want to leave everybody out this morning. So we're all involved here. Um, I think Jonah could have been self-righteous. I think he was self-righteous. And so what a self-righteous person does is that we overlook our sin or we'll minimize our sin and we'll make sure other people's sin is really just huge. Like, wow, look how bad Nineveh is. Man, they deserve God. You should judge them. Don't be merciful to them. But Jonah, let's remember your own story here. Like, how many times have you fled from God? How many times did you disobey God? How many times was God gracious to you instead of, in spite of your rebellion uh, to him? So, this, the longer you're a Christian, the longer you're in a church, this attitude can creep into your heart. That there's a part of you that, you know, your sin isn't really that bad. Your sin isn't as bad as those people out there, okay? And so it can even be that sometimes you'll use um, your religious duties as leverage on God. 
Like, okay, hey, God, I, like Jonah, because God, I'm a prophet. God, I know your word. I proclaim your word usually, like when you tell me to. So, so God, I'm, I'm on your team. I'm good. I'm one of the good people, God. Like, so you should get them because, and not me because I'm on the good team. And sometimes that can just subtly creep in. I've gone to church for many years. I don't do this. I don't do that. I, I try to follow God. And so we got to watch that, that we minimize our sin and we expand the sin that we see in other people. But what's really cool, even as, as Jonah's revealing an ugly heart, in fact, this whole Jonah-God dialogue in chapter 4 is like a little, like have you seen those, those epic throwdowns at a grocery store between like a toddler and a parent, you know, like where the kid is just, you know, all heck's breaking loose because they get a candy bar or whatever it was, and they're on the floor screaming and kicking. And so I just feel like that's Jonah in this, but you see God throughout it. Again, God could have just like, oh, okay, that's it, Jonah done. You know, like, bring Micah in. That's not, like, again, he pursues Jonah in his grace and his kindness, and he's like that parent just kind of getting down and going, now, is your anger really helping things out here, honey? You know, like, it's that kind of thing. That's kind of God's tone, like, hey, is it really doing you well here, Jonah, to get, to get angry? And so that's a constant theme in the Bible, is that we tend to run from God, and yet God chases us in his love and his grace. Reminds me, sometimes in parenting world, you try to have a conversation. It's like, no, I'm not talking to you, Dad, and we need to talk. So you just kind of gently follow, and you try to go. It's like, no, we're going to have a conversation. You kind of see that play here all through chapter 4, is that God and and Jonah, um, God continues to pursue Jonah and his grace. So verse 5, it says that Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. What reminds me here is this reminds me of what our family does on the 4th of July. Like we have our spot where we like to go and watch the fireworks. I think that's what Jonah's hoping for. Like, okay, I came here to see a throwdown. I came here to see God's judgment on Nineveh. I'm just going to set up a little shelter. I'm just going to set my chair up. If I have to be here 39 days, that's fine. I just want to see the fireworks. Like, I want to see God's judgment just nuke Nineveh. Like, that's where Jonah is right now. He just can't, he just kind of can't wait. He said, I am so sure God's not going to forgive them. I'm so sure they're going to they have 39 more days. They're going to blow it. God's going to forget his little, you know, change his mind. He's going to let them have it. And I'm going to have a front row seat. So that's where, I think that's where Jonah is right now. He wanted to see, he wanted to see the fireworks. And so um, Jonah, you keep reading the story. So God is going to continue to pursue Jonah. And so in verse six, it says that the Lord appointed a plant and he made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. That word exceedingly we saw earlier where he's exceedingly angry. Now he's exceedingly glad because he's getting a little coverage here. He's getting a little shade. His little spot of watching the fireworks is getting more comfortable. So now he's really excited. So, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Do you, again, notice all the things God's directing, fish, storm, wind, plant, worm, like everything is following his bidding except Jonah. So, um, and the worm attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, do you do well? Again, here we are, the parent getting down with the tantrum kid. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So again, think of the intense, here we are, the intense heat moment, like as you go out, just 
Soak this in right now. He's in that intense, scorching desert heat. And what a relief it was to even just have a little bit of shade. And he's kind of coasting in that until God takes away that plant. Then he gets mad again. So here's the deal going on there. I think that a self-consumed person is not going to at all have God's heart for what God is doing. The, the things, if the things that drive our heart are the things that make us comfortable and that's it, then we will not share God's heart for his grace going out, even to what we would consider the worst of sinners. And that's what's going on with Jonah. He's so consumed with his needs. He's so excited about the grace of God when it's for him. But once it goes beyond him, he's not that excited about it. He's not about that. He's about God being gracious to him. And so um, it is so easy for us to be like that, especially, I would say, uh, a Christian in the United States in 2016. We have uh, the most amazing setup that I think a Christian has ever had in the history of Christianity. It is so easy for us to be distracted by comfort. And like we'll be excited about God when he's providing for us, the job's going well, the relationships are going well, the family's going well. Like we just expect, we just anticipate God's just going to keep blessing us. And we get so consumed in that that we don't even care, we don't even look beyond ourselves to see uh, what the needs are around us. I mean, be honest about the things that make us upset. Jonah got upset about a plant. Meanwhile, in the valley below, he could hear a hundred, imagine a city of 120,000 Voices. You would just constantly, that would be the constant backdrop. And so to miss that all those voices are now experiencing the grace of God, and instead you're angry about a worm and a plant. And so we can do the same thing, just total loss of perspective. Like we can get really angry if a cell phone battery dies, like, oh, why didn't I charge that? You know, or, you know, whatever the anger comes out. But in the meantime, if today's an average day, there could be a whole city of Nineveh that dies in our world without knowing the gospel, without knowing Jesus. And we won't even bat an eye about that. We're mad about the cell phone, but what about 120,000 people dying without the gospel? What about that? Or we'll get upset about getting, you know, our keys are lost. Like, oh, I threw my day off for five minutes. I had to look all over for those keys. And yet, how many of us get as worked up about a friend of ours or somebody in our family that might be lost and not knowing who God is? Like, do we have this same proportional response it's something like that, um, or even something like being stuck in traffic. You know, like five more minutes, man, this line's so long. Why didn't that guy get through the light? I mean, if he would have just gotten through that light, I would have been home five minutes earlier. Like stuck in traffic. Man, I'm really showing my impatience today, aren't I? But like so, uh, you know, so upset about being stuck in traffic. But what about the people around us that are just kind of stuck in sin because nobody's really ever explained to them like God's plan and how God does things? I got a phone call on Friday from a pastor, and I, the way the phone call started, I should have known where it was going next, but it started like this, like, Doug, have I ever told you, I just need to tell you more often how much I really appreciate you. So like, okay, what's coming next? You know, and so what was coming next was um, I had a speaker lined up for tomorrow, and um, he had to drop through, so what are you doing tomorrow morning? So, uh, and can you come talk to some parents about what the Bible says about training your kids for sex. So at seminary, they said, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die at a minute's notice. Let's add, talk about sexuality to parents. And so I felt like, okay, okay yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's go do that. And, so, and I, I so crammed it in. It was kind of a full day already, but just got over there. And as I was there, man, just immediately my heart just started 
started melting. Like, and I'd been invited a couple different times, kind of casually, with a little more notice than, than the day before. And there was always something like, well, maybe not this week, but maybe next time. There was some reason I would always give. But once I got there, there was just something stirring in my heart and just a real heart for these parents. And so then I got to get up and just kind of give, I don't know, like a 20-minute overview. And then we just took questions about when God gives us standards for sex, it's because he loves us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to protect us those kind of things, um, and then just different questions, really good questions coming from the parents. And the background of parents was widespread. There was, they weren't all Christians, and so for some of them, it might have been new, new teaching. And what broke my heart the most was at the very end when uh, one of the moms stood up and um, just very open and said, I'm 40 years old, and I have five children, and I have never been married. And um, nobody's ever explain what you just explained. And um, one of the other panelists I was with said that um, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to give you life. And so we were just talking about that. That's like God's standards. When he gives us these standards for sex, uh, he wants to, to give us an abundant life. But meanwhile, the enemy wants to rob, kill, and destroy. So this woman stood up and said, my, I would describe my life as that I have been robbed, I have been stolen from and I've been destroyed because I have not followed God's plan for sexuality. But because of today, I want to make sure my kids follow this plan. And I need to be in a place where I can be fed um, with some truth about the Word of God. And I'll be honest with you, when I heard that, and it still does to me, um, it, just, it just stabbed my heart. Like, why haven't you gotten there? Like, why haven't you done this more? Why were those other times, you know, that you didn't do that? And I don't hate those the, the people in that group. I don't. There was just, but just kind of a passive indifference. It just wouldn't have been convenient. And I just wonder how many of us. I'm, I'm going to bring you in with me, okay? Uh, how guilty we are. We have been we have been entrusted with some amazing truth that I think sometimes as long as it's going well for me or as long as it's going well for my family or if I have a little extra time, yeah, I might go help. But like, why? Why do we just kind of sit and do that? It's because I think we are overly concerned with just consuming with what God is giving us instead of really looking for extending God's grace way beyond where we just normally go. And I believe there are people in our city, there are people in this country who would just love to just have people befriend them and just graciously teach them the truths of God about any topic, about any topic. So... That's where Jonah is. But what's so awesome is that God continues to respond to Jonah with his grace and his mercy. And so in the last two verses of chapter 4, it says, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Then God says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? and also much cattle. Okay, I just got to get the cattle thing out of the way right now. I have no idea why the cattle, where it is there. I don't know why this whole great book ends with the word cattle. Um, no commentary even comes close to giving me a good answer on that. So we're leaving it up to my freedom to just wonder here. So I wonder if Jonah was in 4-H. Like, did he, like, raise cows? And that was like, like, he was hard-hearted towards people. But like, but Jonah, the cattle are going to die too. The poor cows. Look at Bessie. She's going to fry, you know, so... I don't know if that was it. Did you remember the reference in verse 3, too, about 
the animals getting sackcloth? Like, I don't, get, I don't get that, okay? So, and there's no good answer. One guy said, well, it shows God's concern for the economy, and there were many cattle there. Who knows? But like at the end, why does the whole book end with cattle? I don't know. I do think maybe God's just trying to play in Jonah's heart. Jonah, if you're not going to have compassion for 120,000 people, maybe you will for those cute little cows over there. See the little sackcloth outfits there? Like, they're really sorry for what they've done. Like, so I don't know why cattle's there. Let's just, we'll just leave it there, okay? So, but it's there. Um, but what you see before that is God is just unfolding his heart. Again, God is exuberant that 120,000 people repented, but God loves Jonah enough that he's not going to leave Jonah to wallow in his hardened heart. He's going to pursue Jonah. He's going to continue to show Jonah his heart. And this is where I think this book of Jonah, scholars look at it and they go, there's some books of the Bible you can say, well, it was written by this author for this person in this situation. And with Jonah, nobody knows. Like, what was the exact situation? Because they think Jonah was intended to be a book that was timeless. Because these are, these are issues that God's people are going to struggle with throughout the history of following God. That there will be those tendencies of us to hate people, uh, to just be totally indifferent to other people that are different than us, or the, the, the uh, propensity to just soak in and just enjoy God for ourselves. Like, those are just going to be trends. And God says, I want you to see my heart. That's not my heart. But here's my heart, Jonah, is that uh, you are overly concerned about a plant that was here and gone. I love Nineveh. I love 120,000 people acknowledging me and repenting to me. I love that. And so that's the kind of heart God wants in his people. Look at, look at these verses in 2 Timothy 2. It just directly reflects God's heart. It says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Do you remember when God said about Nineveh, he said there's 120,000 people there that don't know their left hand from their right hand. He's not making fun of them. He's saying they're stupid. He's just saying they just don't know. They don't know about me. They don't know that I'm a merciful God. And so you see Paul saying the same thing here in 2 Timothy, is that that when there's opponents in your life or people that are living a different lifestyle than you, they are not the enemy. And there's a whole different way that you attack an enemy versus the way you rescue a hostage. God says the heart of my people will be not that other people are your enemies, but that they are a hostage to the true enemy, the one that wants to rob, steal, and destroy them. So you, you fly bombers over and attack with armies if it's your enemy. But if somebody's held hostage, man, you go in very carefully because you want to save the life of that hostage. You want to take out the enemy and rescue the hostage. That's our heart toward people that don't believe in Jesus, that don't understand this, that are living a totally different lifestyle than you. They are not the enemy. They are hostages. And you move in with compassion and with humility, just like God does with us. I debated whether to do this next passage with you. I ran it by Lori. She said, no, I don't know. It might be a little bit confusing. Um, Eight o'clock said you guys could track with it, though. So we're going to go ahead and go with it, okay? So it's an amazing passage, you guys. Isaiah 19, verses 23 and 25. It's a prophecy that God gave Isaiah about the future. Listen to what he said. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, Uh, On a map, those two countries would be on either side of Israel. And historically, those were two of Israel's greatest 
long-time enemies, okay? Those are enemies. Listen to what God says about them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, in Egypt into Assyria. And by the way, Nineveh is in Assyria. I don't know if I connected that dot, so that's why it pertains. Okay, so here we go. So there's a highway, and uh, Assyria will come to Egypt, Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed. Listen to this last verse, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people. You don't, Do you get that? Like those are longtime enemies, whole different faith system. God says, Egypt, my people. And then he says, and Assyria, including Nineveh, the work of my hands. And right in the middle of them, Israel, my inheritance. You see the heart of God there is that he chose Israel to be a people that would understand that he is a God who is gracious and merciful and steadfast in love. Not so they would sit back and just complain about the other countries, but so that they would influence and show the other countries that they too can worship this God because he is gracious and merciful and steadfast in love. That's the plan of God. And that's what he is calling us into. He loves us. We are his inheritance. We are adopted sons and daughters in God's family. But it doesn't stop there because then when you leave church today, you go into a neighborhood where I don't know who lives around you, but there may be some people that just have different lifestyles and views. Your role in that neighborhood is not to complain and judge, but your role in that neighborhood is to love and express the grace of God. When you go to work tomorrow, I don't know who's in the office next to you or the cubicle or whatever, but you're not to go and grumble and complain about how different they are, but you're to go and reflect the grace and the mercy of God. I don't know who you go to school with or who is in the dorm next to you, but it's the same deal God loves throughout the scripture. God loves to bless his people so that they will be a blessing to all the nations, not just to his people. And when that happens, when that heart of God is expressed from God's people, it is irresistible. One of the clearest ones that's happened in our country was about a year and a half ago in Charleston, South Carolina, May 2015, where one of the most heinous racist acts that we've seen in a long time when Dylan Roof went into that Bible study in an African-American church, a Wednesday night small group, and sat in there and read the Bible with them and then pulled out a gun and killed all but one of them. I mean, that was staggering. And again, in a, in a time where our country is already on edge with racial tension, it ignited our country, except for then the act that totally overrode that anger was the amazement at the response of the church. There was a bond hearing where different ones kept just sharing their, their love and their forgiveness for the murderer. And so it was so profound that one of the writers for the USA Today said this, that when Christians are in the news, it's usually because they've done something wrong. They've gotten on the wrong side of a culture war or they've cheated on their wife or worse. And the world rarely gets to see the powerful grace that flows from a deep faith predicated on the belief that we are all sinners in need of forgiveness. In fact, we have just a quick clip. CNN took out some of the best comments, but there's still a few good ones that made it. So let's watch what our country saw. In shackles and wearing prison stripes, gunman Dylan Roof walks into his first court appearance with little fanfare or emotion. His image broadcast via a video link from the detention center into a North Charleston courtroom. On the other side of the screen, off camera, relatives of the innocent victims. Through tears, some of them spoke. 
I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And have mercy on your soul. One of them, Felicia Sanders, a survivor of the slaughter who lost her son in the attack, seems to speak for them all. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautifulest people that I know. Every fiber in my body hurts. And and I'll never be the same. Forgiveness also a focal point at a prayer vigil on Friday. Quite a remarkable response from a city still healing. C.W. Cook is a writer for the National Review, and he said he tweeted this after what we just saw. He said, I am not a Christian, and I must say that this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. That's what God would long for us to do as a church, to be a people that reflect the heart of God for people that are seemingly far from him. And so what I want us to know, too, is that God's grace invites us into a place of repentance. Just like he offered that to Nineveh, he invites that to his people, too. He continually pursued Jonah. And if anything we've talked about this morning has convicted you, God, in his love, is pursuing you. He's trying to open your heart up so that your heart can become more like his. And the best step to take to begin that process is to repent and just to acknowledge, God, I am, I'm a hater. God, I'm indifferent. God, I'm selfish. God, I'm greedy. God, I've been entrusted with this gospel and I'm not doing much with it. Uh, God, I just, just confess that to you. You repent to him. And so the Bible is all about people who have run from God and God continues to run after them in his love and his grace. It's interesting, in Jewish synagogues every year, when they get to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when they recognize that, the whole group that gathers for that worship reads the whole book of Jonah together. And at the end of the reading, everybody in that service says, I am Jonah. And so as we end this study of the book of Jonah, I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. And just so you know what you're saying, when we say, I am Jonah, it means a couple things. One, it means, I have Jonah's heart. I have a propensity to just run as far away from God as I can. I have a propensity to be selfish and to be uh, racist and to be a hater and to think about myself way before I think about others that don't know him. So when you say, I am Jonah, you're admitting those things. But the other thing you're acknowledging is when you say, I am Jonah, it also means that you are pursued and loved by a God of grace who doesn't leave you there in that sin, but who is going to continue to to hound you until you see his grace, until your heart changes and, and reflects his heart of grace. So church, I invite you to follow with me as I, in count of three, we all just say, I am Jonah, okay? One, two, three. I am Jonah. And so what a great morning for us also to celebrate communion because in the book of Matthew, Jesus said, one greater than Jonah is here. He was talking about himself when Jesus was dying on the cross for our sins, he didn't uh, condemn the people that were hanging him on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. They don't know what their right hand or left hand is doing. They are ignorant of what they're doing. 
Jesus forgave. Jonah cared for himself and his people. Jesus cares for all peoples. Jonah ran from Nineveh. Jesus ran to us. Jonah went to Nineveh unwillingly. Jesus came willingly. Jonah came in anger. Jesus came in love. Jonah, Jonah left after he preached. Jesus stayed with us and is now in heaven preparing a place for us to be with him forever. One greater than Jonah is here. And Jonah sat back and waited for God to judge Nineveh. Jesus stepped forward and took our judgment, took our place, and took our punishment that we deserved. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion, that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he gave himself on the cross to make an amazing trade with you. He wants to take your sin and my sin, the judgment we deserve because of that, and in exchange, give us his life. And we're commanded in the Bible to remember that by celebrating communion like we're going to now. So the ushers can come forward and let me pray for us, and um, then we'll take communion together. So Jesus, I, I thank you that you reflect your Father's heart, that you reflect a heart of grace toward sinners like me who run from the presence of God and who do not have the heart of God. And I thank you that you see our sin and you move toward us and you died on the cross for our sins. So Father, would you use this time uh, to remind us of that? May this be a time also where we come clean before you, where we ask for repentance. We ask you to forgive us for what we have done as we have run from you. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.